The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. Now presenting the documentary feature, Pamela, A Love Story. From award-winning director Ryan White, the LA Times says, director Ryan White's documentary lets Pamela Anderson retell her story in her own words with her own focus. Emmy nominated for Outstanding Documentary or Nonfiction Special. This is a film about the Holocaust, one of the low points of humanity and what Americans knew and what they didn't know, what they did, and more importantly, what they didn't do. That was Ken Burns describing his Emmy-nominated series, The U.S. and the Holocaust. Welcome to Top Docs. I'm Mike Merrill. I spoke with Ken and Lynn Novick, who, like Ken, served as producer as well as director on the series. Ken's well-known works are too many to be listed, but just to name a few, Brooklyn Bridge, The Civil War, which made him a household name, Jazz, one of my personal favorites, The Central Park Five, and The Vietnam War. Again, I could go on and on. Lynn Novick produced and directed several of those, as well as Frank Lloyd Wright, Baseball, and Hemingway. Their awards are also too numerous to mention, but between them include Oscars and many Emmys. The U.S. and the Holocaust received nominations in three categories, Outstanding Documentary or Nonfiction Series, Outstanding Writing for a Nonfiction Program, and Outstanding Directing for a Documentary Nonfiction Program. The series can be seen on PBS. As always, if you like this conversation, please do subscribe to the pod, and you can follow us at Top Docs Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Now my conversation with Ken Burns and Lynn Novick about the U.S. and the Holocaust. Ken and Lynn, welcome to Top Docs. Thank you. Thanks so much. As I considered this series, as I thought about how it would be perceived, you know, I think most Americans know something about American history, but often very little about the history of other countries. And I think one exception to this is the Great Wars, and in particular, World War II, Nazi Germany, and the Holocaust. And by the way, I just pulled my teenagers around various issues in the film, and they knew more about the Nazis than they did about us in many ways. And with that in mind, let me ask you about how you start your series and really how you bracket the first episode and return to the story of Anne Frank. Why start here? You know, I think there are lots of blind spots in American history. You know, Reconstruction comes down to us as usually the opposite of what it actually was. But I think you're absolutely right in this case that the Holocaust, we know more about what happened over there. So there is in the story of Anne Frank, which is often where most school children get their entree into the Holocaust, American school children, through her diary, which isn't about the Holocaust. It leads up, as Deborah Lipstadt says in our film, right up to the Holocaust when she's arrested and the diary stops is when the Holocaust begins. But I think it's important for Americans to understand that her father was desperately trying to get into the United States and he checked every single box, right? He was well-to-do, a successful businessman. He had contacts in the United States. He wasn't going to be a ward of the state. He fit right in to the description of the people that could be led into the United States, and he wasn't, which then raises a huge important question that we wanted to sound from the very beginning as we zoom in on the face of his youngest daughter named Annalise. She could conceivably still be alive today if the United States, everybody, and I don't mean Franklin Roosevelt, it's not entirely his fault. I don't mean the State Department. 
they're pretty bad in places. I don't mean the Congress, they're pretty bad in places. The American people themselves did not wish to welcome anyone. And that's on all of us collectively. And it's important to understand as you look at that little baby in the first few seconds of a six and a half hour film, that's our responsibility. We're looking in a mirror of our inaction. And that even with the pernicious Johnson-Reed Immigration Act of 1924, which set all these impossible quotas, making it more and more impossible for people to leave Nazi Germany, we still could have let in five times as many people as we did. And we did let in more than any other sovereign nation. But maybe if we tried really hard, we could have let in 10 times. And then you're talking about subtracting 2 million from the six. And that's what really gets me upset. But let's go back to what the writer Daniel Mendelssohn says in our film over and over again and particularize. Six million is opaque. Let's just deal in this case with this one family of four people, a father and two daughters, Otto and Edith and Margot and Anne. Their problems are not the problems of the familiar European story. They are, and we will get to that at the end of episode three, but there are problems in America because we didn't let them come in and they had every right to come in. And that's the place to begin. And the antecedents and the places where we go in the first episode is to set a very uncomfortable table of just horrible xenophobia and particularly anti-Semitic xenophobia of racism and of anti-native Americans and a kind of nativist thing that's going on in the United States that belies with the Statue of Liberty has meant to many people and belies our own self-advertisement as a nation of immigrants. You begin there, you're in real complicated territory. And then for us, we realized we had to relearn the entire Holocaust, not because our action or inaction changed it. It's just new scholarship has revealed enough about it that's really critical that we had to retell it and kind of reinvent the wheel of telling it. We've told it in two other films on the war and on the Roosevelt's before, but we had to figure out a way to tell it again. Uh, you paint a picture of what was going on in America long before World War II that set this kind of isolationist, anti-immigrationist, that's a word, and, uh, and just this brew of anti-Semitism as well. And one of the strands you follow is the American eugenics movement. Could you speak to what that was and why that's so important in creating that kind of place where we weren't willing to accept these folks in? Yeah, it was really important, as Ken was saying, for us to go back before Hitler came to power to understand why our doors were closed in 1924 with the Johnson-Reed Act. And there was this enormous, powerful wave of anti-immigrant feeling that gained strength as more immigrants came here from Southern and Eastern Europe in particular, those great big waves of the late 19th century, I think a million people every year for 20 years. And the people who were already here, as happens perennially, were uncomfortable about their place in the world and these newcomers coming who weren't like them, who were a threat to the way they were used to living and thinking about who was a real American and who deserved to be here. And it was a very contentious time and underlying it or going through it was this sense of an evolving pseudoscientific explanation for the hierarchies that we had. So the people on top, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant elites, the people who were running the country in every institution, higher education, politics, and not literally everywhere, but the people who had the resources really felt they were there because they were superior to the other people that were coming in. And the pseudoscience called eugenics, which emerged both in the UK and here, and also in Germany and other parts of Western Europe, was looking at supposed data to prove 
that there was a hierarchy of so-called races, where as Ken always says, there's only one race, that's the human race, but they were dividing humanity up into distinct races and putting them in a ladder, a hierarchy with themselves at the top. And as you work your way down, Jews, African-Americans and other people that they saw as lesser were at the bottom. And they felt pretty strongly that number one, these people should not have children. They were overbreeding and therefore messing up the country. And two, that if nothing else should be done, they should not be allowed to come here because they were going to destroy the nation. And that was mainstream thinking. People testified in Congress about this, that we were about to commit race suicide as a nation if we let these people in who didn't belong here. And it's very, as Ken was saying, uncomfortable and ugly to think about that in contrast with this pluralist, multicultural society that was also happening at the same time. The other part of this is, which I think you really show well here, and it's something that I think recent scholarship has been opening up. Just a side note here, I wrote my dissertation on the influence of eugenics on American literature, is the conversation between Germany and the U.S., as it were, before the war. So not only did eugenics play a role in American thought, but American eugenics movement influenced Nazi thought, as well as what's often called Manifest Destiny and even our Jim Crow and anti-miscegenation laws. It's a pretty uncomfortable aspect of it all to think about this two-way street. One of the things that seems clear to us working on this film is how valuable, and many commentators in the past and in the present attest to the value of a single piece of paper that's going to get you to save your life, to get you across a border into Spain or into Portugal or out of this or whatever. But the ideas the bad ideas don't need that visa and they travel and they go back and forth. So you have something like Hitler admiring what America has done to the native populations. They've exterminated them, his word, or they've confined them to what he would later call concentration camps. We called reservations, right? At the same time, German jurists visited the United States, studied in the early 1930s after the National Socialist Party, the Nazis came to power, Jim Crow laws in the South to fashion new Nuremberg laws that would discriminate further against the Jews. And in fact, they didn't go in their eugenics-like classifications the way many of the Jim Crow South did, in which one drop of, as they put it, Negro blood made you black. And so, you know, what is that, 164? I don't know what it is. But in the German version, you could be one quarter Jewish and be okay. So you're beginning to see this strange sort of development, this momentum that takes place, almost like the Galloping Gertie Bridge is just reverberating until it reaches its sort of violent apotheosis in the actual Holocaust and what the Nazis called the final solution, which we don't. It's... It is so paralyzingly sad to think that people in the pantheon of our heroes are involved in this, that as Lynn was saying, eugenics is across the board. It's progressives and it's conservatives. Major universities are funding it. People like Helen Keller and Margaret Sanger are supporting it. And Helen Keller's supporting what they would have called in 2012 or 2010, with the death panels that they're accusing the Affordable Care Act of doing, she was in favor of groups deciding who would live or die based on these kind of eugenics characteristics. It's terrifying. Helen Keller, Helen Keller, for crying out loud. Henry Ford is an out-and-out anti-Semite. He thinks 
Jews are responsible for the assassination of Abraham Lincoln and the change he detects in his candy bar. He buys a newspaper, the Dearborn Independent, which he raises to the second largest circulation, daily circulation in the country. And he's espousing these anti-Semitic views. He, in fact, reprints the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which is this late 19th century Russian hoax, the most virile, unbelievable anti-Semitic. And people are buying this and believing it so that after just statistics-wise, after Kristallnacht, you know, the night of the broken glass in, in 38, uh, November of 38, 86% of American Protestants 85% of American Catholics and 25% of American Jews don't want to let anybody else in. In the face of outright violence across Germany, burning hundreds of synagogues and churches and homes and beating and killing people, it's just, it's the soup, it's the water, it's the air we are breathing. That's who we are as much as the, as Lynn said, the coexisting pluralistic melting pot upwardly mobile uh, story that is also America, but often the more disappointing story never gets the light of day. I think that one of the things that really stuck out and that we've talked about in other projects too is just in the context of the Great Depression, how tenuous and precarious people's lives were and how desperate people were for some sense of security and sense of the future. And so I can only imagine the kind of fear that was pervasive here and in Europe and so that's where this scapegoating of the other, in this case, Jewish people, but in other contexts, we can see other groups being scapegoated. I think there's a susceptibility and a willingness to not loosen those immigration laws. They were put in place at a time of prosperity, okay, in the 20s. But once you have the Great Depression, it's hard for us today to really grasp how desperate people were and how frightened they were that the social order would just completely collapse. So we tried really hard to condemn in our own minds the bigotry and racism and xenophobia and anti-Semitism, but also to sort of try to imagine how could so many ordinary people buy into this and see these immigrants as a threat, refugees as a threat, who clearly would have contributed a great deal to the society. But it's just, there wasn't room for that. I want to talk about how you deal with some of these troubling views. So you have long passages from Madison Grant, who, along with Lothrop Stoddard, really was the creator of the great replacement theory that we saw at the end of your series we see being chanted in Charlottesville. We have passages from Madison Grant. They're read by Paul Giamatti. Got to appreciate, you know, the grandson of an Italian immigrant reading Madison Grant's work. But I did wonder about this. You know, we worry today sometimes about platforming these views. What I thought I noticed is when we are hearing these long passages from Madison Grant, we often are seeing images at the same time of people, like real people, you're showing the people that he hates and you're showing that they're real people. You're obviously focusing on faces. You're trying to show children. You're trying to remind us of their humanity as this is being read. It was that a conscious effort on your part. You know, each instance of any quote is its own circumstances. Sometimes you're hearing a bad quote and you're looking at a really bad cartoon that is caricaturizing the various immigrant groups in the most horrific kind of stereotypes. Other times there is a possibility to show the opposite and the humanity. The important thing is that this was happening. Madison Grant is there saying these things. And we felt a, a particular responsibility this time around, having Lynn and I and Sarah Botstein in the war, having done a fairly full section on the Holocaust that was, you know, no hold bar. We let every bit of footage would go in. We, we pulled back this time. 
we did not show the worst of the footage because we didn't want to re-victimize and we didn't want to privilege the perpetrators. And so we were incredibly careful walking through that. But at the same time, it's still got to be a horrible event. It still has to be difficult to stand and you have to show really bad stuff and there's no way around it. You cannot sugarcoat it because of, you know, increased sensitivities. You have to actually say, this is what actually happened. One and a half million people, at least, maybe two million people were shot to death in the back of the head or by a firing squad in the show by bullets before anybody had ever started talking about gas or Zyklon B or, or whatever it is and the killing centers in Nazi-occupied Poland that are the real thing, not the concentration camps where people are dying and malnutrition and starvation and being beaten and, and worked to death, but people who are going to be killed at these places. And there's no way that you can sugarcoat it. At the same time, we just trust in the power of individual photographs and therefore by extension, their brethren film that are 24 frames a second that the humanity will out. And what you're saying is present in a lot of the way we constructed it. One of the last things we did was add three first person letters from mm. people Part of this particularizing that Daniel Mendelssohn talks about, one is David Berger writing to somebody saying, I just wanted somebody to know that someone named David Berger lived. Another person just recites all the members of the family, including the baby, as just we're here and we're not going to be here long. This kind of direct way of speaking to what the Holocaust is, I think, helps remove the stigma, the opacity that I was talking about later when you just banty around figures like Six million, which, you know, it doesn't mean anything. Yeah, that particularity that uh, Daniel Mendelssohn insists on is basically an ethical stance, right? Yes. And for him, it's personal to his family. They were all killed, right. but in various ways, he wants to point out, yes, despite the industrial slaughter, as you describe it here, there's a particularity. You have some amazing stories from survivors here, the messengers, Guy Stern, but maybe for our purposes right now, we can talk. Guy Stern, who, by the way, you're interviewing him. He's in his late 90s when you're yeah, interviewing he's o him. Yeah. He's over 100 now. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. Is the story of the, the Hills and Rats, because it is incredibly particular and amazing and in some ways almost cinematic. They flee Germany for Paris. And then when the Nazis get to Paris, if they they're go- Actually, their parents but give their children. them away. Yeah. They give them away to protect them. That's the beginning yeah. thing. Like- what yeah. parent is going to send their kid away in danger? And they did because they thought, and then just totally ironically, they get out with the baby earlier and the boy and the girl, it's like a Hansel and Gretel story, are in Nazi-occupied France. I mean, you just, you cannot make this up. It's why people say, well, why don't you move on from documentaries to feature films? And you go, you know, the day job is much more dramatic. Yeah, exactly. And you have these stories of her at Versailles, sleeping on a burlap slap in the ballroom, great ballrooms of Versailles. And then when they finally do make it to America, I think it's an incredible sequence here. The fog lifts like a curtain on an opera. Yeah. I like the image of high yeah. German culture there. And then they're on Ellis Island, literally eating Wonder Bread, you know, yeah. imbibing America. <laughs> and I'm buying chewing, chewing gum. Yeah. Chewing gum. And then they arrive at home. And I think this is one of the most powerful sequences. They think it's going to be this totally happy, connective moment. In fact, her mother has stayed behind in Germany for several months after her father left. And apparently there's something very traumatic happened. She's really not there at that moment. To me, this is a real 
emblematic moment of the Holocaust because you never really escaped it, right? Right. We're so grateful to Susie and Joe for talking about that because like in a lot of families, there's actually enormous stigma and shame around mental illness. And so they were reluctant to really even mention it, but it was so important as you're saying that there's a happy ending, but it's also not a happy ending because this generational trauma is going to be with them and their resilience to tell the story, to live the fullest lives they have, to have grandchildren and productive, beautiful families is such a just testament to the human spirit. And yet there's this horrific tragedy of the family members they lost in Europe and their mother was never the same. And it was really hard for them to tell that story. They never speak about it really, but at the end of their, not end of their lives, at late in their lives, we're just so grateful that they were willing to talk about it because it really helped us to add that layer of what even the survivors who are so lucky and so fortunate and have so much to be grateful for what they're carrying. And as a mother, I mean, to me, the most devastating, one of the most devastating moments in a devastating film is Susie describing that she doesn't remember saying goodbye to her parents. She just blocks out that memory. She cannot remember it. And I'm thinking as either a child or a parent, that would be unspeakably traumatic. And then they finally are reunited and her mother isn't there and never really comes back. And they never spoke about it as a family. So she didn't really know. They didn't really know what happened. That's just uh, a loss that really is indescribable. Your series certainly has a number of villains, of course, Hitler, and, but even in the U.S., Lindbergh pops up over and over again, it, much more virulently anti-Semitic than I understood, a uh, real revelation to me. But you also have heroes here, and I think this is really important and good. You have Congressman Emanuel Seller, cabinet member Francis Perkins, journalist Dorothy Thompson, Rabbi Stephen Wise, and then these other people who actually went to the continent and tried to save people. Amongst those or any, who was a hero in your mind here uh, that you'd like to just tell us a little bit about? Well, I think that uh, obviously Varian Fry, one of those people living a comfortable life in Manhattan and uh, a writer and, and very much an Ivy League guy going into Marseille uh, with cash strapped to his leg and checking into a hotel, Splendide, and getting people out. And as he conspired with the vice counsel, Hiram Bingham III, I think, or Jr., another waspy guy in the crime of saving lives, which is just, to me, a wonderful occupation. And the kind of defiant middle finger they're giving not only to the Nazi regime, but those back home who have impeded the progress of these immigrants. And John Paley in the Treasury Department under Morgenthau, Henry Morgenthau, who's the Jew in Franklin Roosevelt's cabinet, who is cautious. And at the same time, they put through the War Refugee Board, which more than any other institution that the United States was involved in, saved more lives, particularly in Hungary and Romania. And we think of Raoul Wallenberg and all of his extraordinary work, but he saw what he was doing was an American project. He was being underwritten by the War Refugee Board and other people in other consulates and legations from particularly the Swiss legation as well, we're saving people by the tens of thousands. It's a really, really good story. But I think what's really unsung is that there are all these organizations, right? There's the Hebrew Aid Immigrant Society. There's the Unitarian Church. There's the Friends. There's the Red Cross. There are all these organizations that don't have a face and a biographical name, the hook that allows you to do it. But time and time again, as we're watching the story of various people in our film, 
they're intersecting with one or more of these organizations who are ensuring that they're getting from point A to point B, and point B is farther away from the Nazi machine. And this is a really great story to understand that the unsung heroes, the people who even today where we're beset by people who want our contributions to something, that they're all these organizations trying to do good in the world. And in this case, in the middle of the greatest cataclysm in human history, they're actually effectuating rescue after rescue after rescue. And I'm so glad that you bring up that because this is one of the darkest stories you could possibly tell with many, many points of light. One of the questions you ask at the end is what more could we have done? especially given that so much of the Jewish population of Europe was way in the Northeast, in Poland and Latvia and so forth. And Deborah Lidstadt, great historian and now a special envoy, suggests that we could have taken more refugees from the places we could reach, the Iberian Peninsula, North Africa. But the U.S. government saw winning as like not just key, maybe the whole thing and everything else was a distraction. I think you, in the series, you explore this. You're not saying coming down on one side exactly. Could you talk about what you think the series reveals? I think, as Ken was saying, the impediments to doing more was the American public and to a large degree and public opinion and the the way our government functions. So it would have been difficult to do something on the scale it needed to be done in time. And the the, the biggest opportunity, as Sarah Botstein, our co-director, always speaks about, is that before the war started, before 1939, there were tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who wanted to get out of what was then Nazi-occupied parts of Europe even before the war, and we were not open to that. And if we had been more open then, before the war, once the war started, our hands were somewhat tied. We didn't have troops on the ground. We we couldn't go rescue people. So it was really a question of almost the bureaucracy opening up. There was an experiment of one ship was allowed. The War Refugee Board sponsored essentially a ship of 900 people to come here as refugees and have temporary status. They were put on a, a place in upstate New York as an sort of to show the world this was possible, that we could just temporarily give people refuge here, and then they could go back home theoretically later, it was never expanded. Just that one opportunity for 900 people. And I always wonder, why couldn't we have done that a few thousand times more? Every life, like Ken was saying, that we could have saved whatever down to to humanity's credit. At scale, once the war started, to rescue some significant number of the six million who were killed is probably not possible, realistically. I think Lynn is exactly right. And I think there are two parts to your question. In one case, I agree absolutely with Deborah Lipstadt that we could have done more. There were pressure points that we could have made easier, but we did not. And even with the war starting, the, the, the idea was that we were fighting the war to win, not to save Jews. And there was a big problem in the idea that that could be translated very much in the Civil War, where when Lincoln moved it to emancipation, in addition to Union, Lots of Northern troops just said there was an Illinois regiment, his own thing, that said they'd rather lie down and let moss grow on their backs than fight for the liberation of the N-word. Also, as you pointed out, so many of the victims are in more than half of German Jews, more than half of Austrian Jews got out. The problem is in Nazi-occupied Poland and Ukraine and Belarus and Latvia and Lithuania and Estonia and Romania and Hungary, there are lots and lots of Jews and there's no way to get to them. And then the question becomes, do you later on, another one in which we don't take sides, do you bomb the rail lines to Auschwitz as Deborah Lipstadt said yes to call attention, knowing full well that those rail lines, if they're hit by inaccurate bombing, Auschwitz was hit 
by bombs intended for five miles away because 80% of the bombs dropped by American bombers fell outside five miles of their intended target. It was an accidental bombing of a part of the gigantic sprawling compound that was Auschwitz. And then the scholar Rebecca Erbelding says, you know, it's a no-win situation. Are you the people that knew this was going on and didn't bomb it? Or are you the people who knew it was going on and bombed it? Meaning accelerating the deaths of even more of the prisoners in those places. It's one of those things where you it's a huge tragedy and you have to hold these two opposing things in, in tension all the time in history and any good storytelling. But when you're getting down to the Holocaust, and I, I would say not forgetting America had nothing to do with the Holocaust, but let's also remember that our response is so terrible. It's so inadequate that we have to hold our own feet to the fire for that inadequacy. And one thing I will just add is that after the war, no one could say Americans didn't know what had happened. And there were millions of refugees who had survived and we were not willing to open our borders then to them. 5%, 5% of the American public were willing to let in more than what the quotas permitted. Well, consider the legacy of the series and legacy of the Holocaust and legacy of our involvement, a failure to be involved as much as we could have been. I think some people might feel, well, this was 80 years ago. The Nazis are long gone. But as I was watching the series, I couldn't help, I won't bring them all up, but I couldn't help be struck by some of the lessons that could be learned. One of the ones that just comes to mind is how to deal with tyrants. And Deborah Lipstadt says, you know, tyrant will just keep pushing and pushing, always trying the boundaries. If you want to stop them, you got to stop them early. And that how clever the Nazis were in playing off this, right? The more you defend the Jews, the more we're going to have to punish them sort of the, what they say, right? And then right. they use it, oh, you did something now, we can punish them more, right? I'll just say, it's hard for me not to think here of Putin saying, the more you protect the Ukrainians, the more we got to attack them. I won't insist that you share my politics there, but is this one of the lessons is around tyranny and how to deal with it? I hesitate about lessons, only that we're storytellers, you know? But history rhymes, as Mark Twain is supposed to have said, it doesn't repeat itself. And very much human nature doesn't change and that we see all of these impulses today. And when we started our film, it was 2015. It was a really, really different kind of America. And we expected, as we've seen in every film that we've made, for there to be many rhymes within the story that we're telling with the contemporary moment. What we didn't expect as we went along is how much was rhyming, not just far across the sea in Putin's Russia, but right here at home. And so we actually accelerated the production by a year, which caused a lot of gray hairs on all of our parts and felt we wanted to be part of a conversation sooner because of the urgency of the ideas that are going on and felt too, and referred to that we weren't going to end it with you know, the Nuremberg trials or with Eichmann's trial, or even the replacement of the Johnson-Reed with another deeply flawed, but much better immigration law that Johnson signed into existence at the Statue of Liberty, our visual trope from moment one to, to the end of the film. All three episodes are named after phrases from Emma Lazarus' poem. That's super intentional. But we had to go on. We had to go right up to more or less the present moment and understand the threat from authoritarianism, the continuing anti-Semitism and racism that abounds. All of the things that beset us today are all 
as Mendelssohn again says at the film, it's not saying that it's going to go that way, but it could. And he speaks again and again to the fragility of institutions, how quickly things deteriorated. And we've said over and over again that if you wanted to be in the sort of the best, most vibrant place on earth in 1932, where everything is happening in architecture and music and cinema and painting and ideas and conversations, you do no better than to be in Berlin in the next year. Not so much. I mean, we think about this so much and it was so surreal to be working on this film while our country was teetering on the verge of totalitarianism and authoritarianism seeming to be gaining sway. And that sense of the fragility of our democracy, which is something Daniel Mendelssohn says so beautifully at the end of the film, I never experienced that as an adult. Lots of crises have happened in my lifetime, but this felt different because the basic foundations, assumptions about how our country operates and what we've taken, what I've taken for granted, the rule of law, the peaceful transfer of power, the freedom of the press, you know, just the basic fundamental building blocks of what makes our democracy function seem to be right on the edge of just being swept away. And it still feels that way. Working on the film was terrifying. And also, as Ken always says, you know, it felt so important because it was helping us to understand what's going on around us. And every film does that, but this was different. Do you folks have anything to add? You've asked really, really great questions. You've obviously been a keen observer of our film. We're so grateful that you saw it and could see underneath the layers of it what the structures were and what we were trying to explicate. There's really no, no thumb on any scale other than to say just how horrible this was and how much we failed our own ideals when it came to rescuing people that we could have rescued and could have stayed and didn't. Daniel Green has that one point where he says, the point here isn't to like wag our finger at the path. Oh, right, right. It's to understand the tension between having a humanitarian ideal and living up to it. And I couldn't help but think uh, the 1619 Project do, just speaking to Shoshana Guy the other day, this is the same thing where it's not just, oh, we're horrible people. It's we're trying. We don't always succeed. And boy, these are examples where we have not succeeded. Well, I'm working on with Sarah Botstein, a big history of the American Revolution, which is talk about 1619. You have to get into some stuff, which heretofore has appeared to be this incredibly lofty story of white guys in Philadelphia in powdered wigs thinking great thoughts and a few sturdy militiamen in Concord and Lexington withstanding the greatest military force on earth. And it's a hell of a lot more complicated than that, involving again, Native Americans, involving again, free and unfree Black Americans and incredible violence between loyalists and patriots and loyalists. And it's not your father's or your grandfather's revolution. I can't wait to see it. I think the sense is what is America? What makes us a nation? And it is the ideals. So in the project of having these ideals and not living up to them, that's it. That's the whole everything. And the ideals will never be able to realize them. But they are so powerful, maybe most powerful to those who don't have the full benefits of them and that's hold right. us accountable for it. And that's such an inspiring and also deeply saddening state of affairs, but that makes us unique. And I do hold on to that because otherwise it's a dark story, but there is this one thing that nobody else really has. Nobody has. Look, can I speak to that secret sauce for one second? The author of that secret sauce, Thomas Jefferson, is of course a deeply flawed human being who articulates the rights of human beings, but owns hundreds of them and doesn't see the hypocrisy or the contradiction and doesn't free any of them in his lifetime. 
But he, a few sentences beyond the famous second sentence, he says, all experience has shown that mankind are disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable. It just means, you know, the whole history of the human race has been under an authoritarian boot. That's what people expect. And people are doing this. And what we're creating is going to require a little bit more effort, a little bit more engagement. And that goes back to something that Sarah Botstein, our, our co-director, has said over and over again, that the thing that the Holocaust prompted in her was just a very simple act of the privilege of citizenship in a free society and the obligations of citizenship in a free society to serve on your school board, to do this, to do that. Because Jefferson's right. We are disposed to suffer, to follow the tyrant, to be under the tyrant's boot. And, and in order to throw it off, it takes an incredible amount of energy and vigilance, that sounds cliched, in order to maintain that specialness that Lynn articulates. It's, it's very true. There's nothing else after it. I'll tell you something that unites all of the ideas is that I was approached by somebody a few months ago, I think a reporter, I can't remember now what it was, and he said, do you think the Holocaust is the most important event since the birth of Christ? And I instantaneously mm. said, no, it's the birth of the United States. He was talking about inhumankind, right? And we can all agree, regardless of our beliefs, that the birth of Christ is a significant moment in world history, right? The best thing, the most important thing, is the birth of the United States born in unbelievable violence. And that trumps the horrificness of the Holocaust. And that's, that's why we don't accept, we're not just gonna go gently into the night with regard to what we did not do and could have done legally, forget about extra legally, but you know what we did not do to save human beings in the midst of this horrific event that we call the Holocaust. Thank you both. Thank you for decades of great work. And this, as I said, I, I thought I knew something about this period. I taught this period at the university level, and then still I learned a great deal. You brought a lot, as, as I said, of the new understanding of what the Holocaust was and our involvement and how we influenced the Nazis early on, all here. Thank you for that. And really, thank you for holding up that mirror to us and saying, this is who we are. This is who we were. This is who we are. And if we want to get somewhere else, we've got to face that first. That's right. Yeah, well said. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. Thank you again. Do you have a hidden gem, a documentary that you don't think is the attention it deserves? You know, we've been involved for years and years in mentoring lots of documentary filmmakers within our company, without our company, through the agency of the Better Angels and the Levine Prize at the Library of Congress. And so we see lots of documentaries and even those that win, I don't think necessarily have the same sort of path that other sort of larger places streaming and, and premium cables could give it. And so I think our world is filled with projects that we're trying to help mentor and wish everybody could see. So they're in some ways too numerous to mention specifically one without neglecting to talk about all of them. <laughs>